Warm greetings to all of you and welcome back to Intersections, where we are seeking to dissolve, dissolve the boundaries between life and leadership and inner and outer and east and west and science and spirituality and beyond. Because it is when we dissolve these boundaries that we discover our full potential and the full potential of humanity and of life. Today we have with us a um, wonderful voice of uh, that very quest of helping to uncover both his own potential, Srinivas Rao, as well as in getting lessons and insights that as he's introspected and drawn them out, read and studied and learned about them from the outside, as well as lived them in his own life, that he can bring to us as well about what does it take to rise to a full potential. Super excited about having Srini with us. He is a passionate storyteller and the founder of The Unmistakable Creative. Here is his um, path as described in more you know, mainstream, professional and academic terms. He's done a bachelor's in economics from UC Berkeley, an MBA from the Pepperdine Business School. He founded Unmistakable Media and has hosted The Unmistakable Creative podcast for more than a decade now. Has authored also seven books and is sought after as a keynote speaker around these themes. His focus is on using the internet to make things, connect people, share ideas, and tell stories. Uh, the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, um, I was honored to be on it, uh, and I just found it uh, really powerful, the manner in which Srini was able to really help me <laughs> you know, go within and discover more of my voice than I was doing on an average day. And I was like, Srini, you've got a gift here in the way you can like, get this back and forth dialogue to happen. Here are some of the other people that he's had in podcasts. It's, it's a wide range and some very well-known people, some way off the beaten track. We're going to come back and talk more about them in the conversation I have with Srini very soon. A couple of the books that he's written, An Audience of One and Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best. We're going to talk more about that theme in just a few minutes. He's working to help organizations and individuals increase their productivity by expressing what is unique to them in terms of their own creative gifts. And uh, I highly encourage you to listen to his podcast, which he's always bringing such a diverse set of voices. And on that note, let me invite uh, Srini into our mix. Welcome, Srini. How are you? I am great, Hitendra. It's so uh, great to be be here with you. I enjoyed talking to you so much on Unmistakable Creative that when you asked me to come and join you to be on the other side, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's awesome that uh, I, I imagine that the fact that through that moment, our lives intersected and have uh, come together, you know, on a couple of occasions since and uh, benefited so much from knowing you and knowing about you and, and learning from you that that you must have those kinds of experiences all the time with like over a thousand <laughs> people that you've interviewed. Well, I wish I, I wish that was you know, true. It, it's funny because, it, you know, every guest I have some semblance of a relationship with and others, they make their appearance on the show. It goes great. And that's kind of the end of it. You know, it, it varies. I, I definitely think that one thing that we probably already had in common is the fact that we're both of Indian descent. So you automatically have this bond that kind of transcends even, you know, the conversation we're going to have on the podcast. So that just creates this sort of instant ability to relate to each other in a way that I can't always relate to other guests because we can talk about, you know, sort of context, cultural context when I ask questions. And for you, those things make sense. For other people, they don't. So I think that that definitely makes a big difference. Um, yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of Indian guests on the show. And, and you know, to, to the point in your introduction, I had a professor from uh, University of Pennsylvania uh, as a guest. And, and he said, you know, Srini, I thought I was going to come here and talk about artificial intelligence. And now you have me questioning the purpose of my life. It's like, yes, I've been known to do that to people. But 
I think that it's interesting. Like I, I joke that I'm the most you know well-connected person that nobody has ever heard of. And if you look at the network that I've built, there's varying degrees of depth in every relationship. You know, people think, oh, you know, Srini knows everybody and he can call anybody for any favor. And that, that's not entirely true, but I can probably connect you to anybody who knows how to do something, no matter what the skill is. Like if you want to run for president, I know the guy who can tell you how to do it. That's amazing. Let me probe one thing you just said, because that like struck out in me when you talked about that professor from University of Pennsylvania and you know artificial intelligence. So when you do the podcast, you interview somebody who's had a certain signature in their life, certain something that they might be very distinctively known for or that has drawn you to them. But then when you get into the conversation, do you do you do that often? Do you tend to at times make them go to unexpected places and probe and stir something that maybe evokes certain stories and ideas that uh, they may or may not be having as part of their usual message? Yeah, I mean, I don't want anybody to share their usual message because that's not interesting to me. One of my, you know, sort of core ideas is that if I could learn about what I'm going to learn in an interview from reading a blog post or reading your book, that defeats the purpose of the interview. I want to learn the things that I could never find from reading somebody's bio or looking at their LinkedIn profile for several reasons. I mean, part of it is strategic. Part of it is, is genuine curiosity. So the strategic part is that Human beings are hardwired for story. And there's a reason NPR has what they call driveway moments where people will sit in their driveway and just quietly listen. They can't because the thing is, like you press play and you cannot stop listening. And so I had a, a business partner a couple of years ago. And one of the things that he, he told me, he said, you know, he started analyzing the show in more detail. And as he was looking at you listening, he said, you know, you're having these really deep conversations with people, but it's taking, you know, anywhere between 15 to 20 minutes to get to the juiciest parts. He said, and what he said was, you know, don't ask them about their work to start with. You'll eventually get there anyways. We ask very off the wall questions. I knew based on our conversation, I knew which question I wanted to start with. So I usually know where I'm going to start and where I'm going to end. And that is it for a couple of reasons. One, one of the reasons I don't plan questions in advance is that in my life outside of Unmistakable Creative, I'm not the best listener in the world, which is ironic considering I've made a living listening to people. But I realized that if you don't plan questions in advance, it forces you to listen to every single person in very, very close detail. And so I plan every, every, every question is based on the answer that I get to the previous question. So, you know, I describe it kind of like surfing and surfing people, you know, have never seen how surfers uh, are in the ocean. If you don't know anything about surfing, what you may not know is that typically when a surfer is riding a wave, they're actually riding parallel. They're not riding straight. And basically what they're doing is they're adjusting to whatever the wave does throughout the process until they get to the end of the wave. And sometimes, you know, you'll get four or five, six turns on a really good wave. Sometimes you'll get one and be done. So I think that that to me has always been the metaphor that I use to approach these conversations. Almost everything that I'm asking somebody will come out of genuine curiosity. So remember, you know, I knew you had a daughter, you know, having been raised by Indian parents, I wanted to know you know, from your perspective, you know, what is it like to raise a kid who's 10 years younger than me? Like, what are you teaching her about careers? How does that differ from what my parents taught me? I also realized that parenting from what I hear is a very complex job. And I think that I have this misperception that somehow asking all these questions about parents is going to prepare me to actually be one. But rumor has it, that's actually not true because, you know, kids are all unique and yeah. So there are a lot of reasons for that. So that's the, the strategic part of it is very much designed to get people to listen because Roger Ailes, the, the founder of Fox News, he had this quote in TV show, The Loudest Voice in the Room, where he talked about how he wanted to create content that made sure people will never change the channel. 
And that really stayed with me. I mean, I'm not a Fox News guy. I think Roger Ailes is a horrible human being. But at the same time, I don't think that you can discount that there's something to learn from him. He built Fox News and I'm building a media company. So in my mind, you don't don't overlook the value of a message just because you can't stand the messenger. It's something I've, I learned a long time ago. So, you know, I don't agree with everything that my podcast guests say. Like I, I've learned. But at the same time, if you don't seek differing viewpoints, it's very easy to get caught in an echo chamber and just take things at face value and treat gospel uh, guidance as gospel. And that, that's to me very dangerous because it can lead to some very bad consequences. But yeah, that's that's in it a nutshell. Well, there's a lot of beautiful lessons just to learn for us from that, Trini. I mean, that's one thing that I'm striving to do in this show is to help uh, our audience and myself just constantly extract like learnings that are translatable to our own lives. And um, I think one of the things that you've just shared here, which is about the path of discovery, you know, into an individual when you are in a dialogue that uh, while it might involve uh, learning about them from the outside, it's what you can learn about them from the inside. It's about the blank canvas that you bring of just like open inquiry and discovery. And then these questions that you ask in response to what they've just shared. And therefore, the yeah. conversation goes in unexpected directions. I mean, how powerful do you find yourself from time to time getting very, if you want to call it stirred or like emotionally moved by by something that you're live, like discovering and hearing and uncovering from that story? I mean, you have such a colorful set of yes. I can only imagine what it must be like to be not just merely an audience, you know, to them, which you are when you're doing the podcast and listening to them, but you're also, in a sense, the curator. You're also the facilitator of that, like, process of extracting the gems of their life. I mean, how is it like for you to, to stay in that state of both service to your audience, but also personally experiencing their energy in the story? Yeah, I think that, you know, like I can literally sum it up with one sentence that if you don't feel it, nobody else will. I don't really think of it as, I don't think like a podcaster creating audio, I honestly think as an entertainer. And so I think there are three components to content that has emotional resonance, right? You can educate, you can inspire and entertain. And, you know, in my mind, the entertainment is, is a critical part of it. Like they're not mutually exclusive, but at the same time, like this is what I've often told aspiring podcasters. Like you have to realize that this is an entertainment medium first and an information medium second. So if you could go and read, you know, 10 tips on how to do something, why would you listen to two people talk about it in audio? Yeah, maybe it might be faster. Funny enough, I actually don't listen to podcasts despite being the host of one. It's my least preferred form of media consumption because I have such a short attention span. So I actually prefer reading books, but I I like creating a podcast. The the real idea is not just, you know, me, me feeling it, of course, like I want that emotion, but I, I do definitely look for emotional resonance. Like, and, and to me, I am very clear on the fact that something has to strike, have emotional resonance with our audience, which is why I've said no to really well-known people. And I've said yes to people that nobody has ever heard of, because what I'm always after is an interesting story more than anything else. I want a good story to come out of it. And at the end of the day, you know, like I said, I mean, I started out as a person interviewing bloggers about how they got traffic to their blogs. But the more I did that, the further we got down the path of doing this, the more I started to see that my favorite interviews were not those, but the ones with people who had interesting stories. And so more and more, the direction of the conversation started to change quite a bit. And it expanded, you know, who you could have as guests from you know, bank robbers to, you know, billionaires to drug dealers to presidential candidates. And so that's, that's a big part of it is really, I think, what it it is, is emotional resonance is a big part of what drives what I do. Now, I also have a background as a musician. I played the tuba for nine years and I got into the USC School of Music. I made Allstate Band three times. And it turns out that people who become writers who are former musicians have really this 
ability to create music with words. Because when I put something on a page, even on paper or when I'm reading, I don't necessarily see words. I hear sounds. You know, to me, I want to see that, you know, if I can get this sort of rhythmic quality to what I'm doing. And there are other writers who are masterful at this far better than I am. Like my friend Sarah Peck is amazing at doing this. Amber Ray is another one. Piano players in particular, for some reason, tend to have this ability to have this very poetic, almost musical sounding voice as writers. And so I think that's very common for people who have spent a lot of time in music of any kind. They tend to really think about words more as music. And so, uh, you know, just to, to give you an example, we did this episode called the 36 questions and the mystery of love. Like if people who were here hadn't read it, there's an article in the New York times about the 36 questions to fall in love with anyone. And so I actually had uh, my roommate and the girl that he was dating at the time, sit down, do the 36 questions. And we put together an episode based on that. We weaved in clips from our previous guests. And when I went to the audio engineer, I said, I have only one instruction, bring the audience to tears. And so, and that's such a vague instruction. And yet he's good enough that uh, he's able to do that. You're talking about stories that emerge in these conversations. And I was wondering, maybe you could, at this uh, early stage of our conversation today, share a little bit, maybe like the story of Joe and Piper. I mean, it's such a compelling story. You've talked about, you've interviewed everyone from billionaires to bank robbers. So are you open to sharing the story of Joe and you know, what, what what unfolded there? Yeah. So Joe is a guy who robbed 30 banks in about 18 months. And so I, funny enough, I, I haven't read that book. I need to. I didn't know about the book before I interviewed him. I'd had a friend who was a previous guest who had also been in prison. Just you know, on a side note, people who've been to prison have really good stories. Like they're just fascinating because you get a glimpse into this sort of dark underworld that most of us hope to never actually get a front row seat to. But we're all curious about. You know, like you know, we kind of see it from the outside. We see it on TV shows like Prison Break and you get a lock up and we're like, huh, like what is this actually like? And part of what you see is true, part of what you see is not. Uh, like I've interviewed a venture capitalist who started a tech incubator inside of San Quentin and I got to actually go visit, you know, the, the prisoners who were a part of his incubator. And these guys were building apps and writing code and I'm looking at them thinking, I can't do half this stuff and these guys are in prison. But Joe Loya was fascinating because Joe Loya was a really, really, really articulate and really smart individual. And, and that's not your first thought that you would think, you know, when you talk to a guy who robs 30 banks, but, you know, he had a rough upbringing and, uh, you know, eventually decided that he was just going to go on a bank robbing spree because in his mind, he thought of all the criminals that he could be, a bank robber was the best kind because he said, you know, if you look at Hollywood, every sort of iconic actor from George Clooney to whoever has played a bank robber at some point. And, you know, bank robbers, they don't have the sort of perception that people do of like murderers, right? Bank robbers are cool and hip and sophisticated and master planners like Mark Wahlberg and Italian job to, again, Clooney in Ocean's Eleven. So people who pull off these huge heists, we look at them and, and we don't necessarily see vicious criminals. We're like, damn, those people are really smart. And so, you know, that was sort of his, his idea. And eventually he got caught. But I think what, what struck me most about Joe Loya was how well read he was. Uh, you know, he when we're in our conversation, he would bring up books. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy read more books in solitary confinement than I did in Berkeley. Like I went to college, he went to prison and he's more well read. So I, I think that the other thing that Joe really did was he really kind of challenged my initial perceptions of what people in prison are like. He said that, you know, you'd be surprised. He said people in prison are funny. You know, there, there's humor. I mean, because the thing is that you have to think about the fact that, okay, somebody does something horrible and they know they're going to be in there for life. They have to find some sense of meaning. And he said, 
said, you know, you, you'd be surprised, but he said, sometimes the people who are lifers are the safest people in the prison to be around. And the other thing that I think that he did, and, and Brian Stevenson echoed this in, in Just Mercy, he said, you know, none of us are defined by the worst thing we've ever done, but people in prison are. And, you know, he had a friend who murdered somebody in self-defense. And he's like, you call that guy a murderer? And he said, no. He's like, he was a murderer for two minutes of his life, but now we've given him that label permanently. And, you know, that's kind of the, you know, the, the backstory. And, uh, you know, after he got out of prison, Joe Loya became a talking head on the, the subject of the criminal justice system. And then he started corresponding for some strange reason with Piper Kerman. I don't even know how the correspondence began. You know, Piper Kerman, for those who don't know, is, is the person, the woman who wrote Orange is the New Black and which eventually got made in the TV show. But she actually, he would send her letters and he actually encouraged her to write down everything that she was experiencing, to put all of it in a journal and tell her stories. And, you know, you've seen Orange is the New Black, parts of it funny. It's, it's again, to that point, you're in this environment in which you're going to have stories that you would never get in any other situation. God forbid that one of it was ends up in prison, but at least they make something of it. So yeah, that's, that's kind of Joe Lloyd. And I mean, we literally could take the Joe Lloyd interview and make a feature length animation out of it. How powerful. I found that so powerful, the point about how most of us are not, are not defined by the worst thing that we've ever done. Uh, and yet these people are. And in some ways, what a unifying thing to then seek to understand them from a more holistic lens. Uh, you also mentioned about how well read he was. And it reminded me, I was just reading the other day, someone who went and studied in great detail, you know, the books and the library, you know, of uh, Mahatma Gandhi and Mahadev Desai, his uh, private secretary. And he found uh, an enormous set of things that Gandhi had read. And yet his schedule was so punishing. You know, every day he would wake up at 4 a.m. and do his prayer and then ultimately get into the public arena for a large part of the day, et cetera. He barely get a few hours of sleep a night. And so he was wondering, how did Gandhi have the time to do so much reading when he was having such a punishing lifestyle? And then as he peered more deeply into those books, because these are literally the physical copies that Gandhi had had, and he saw certain dog-eared pages and certain notes and certain dates and all that, and he started to correlate. And you know what he discovered? He discovered that a lot of those books had been read during the periods that Gandhi was in prison. So it's exactly what you're saying. Somehow prison gives people the, the opportunity if they want to take advantage of it. Yeah, well, there's yeah. nothing else to do, right? You're just yeah, stuck in a cell yeah, yeah. all day. So uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's you'd be amazed how well-read people you know who come out of prison are it, because yeah. you're the ones who take advantage of it. Yeah. So I want to, for a moment, turn the story to you. So, you know, I look at you, Srini, in many, many ways. As you've said, there's a common connection we have to our, to our roots from uh, the Indian origins. But I think in many other ways, too, I can relate to you. There you were at UC Berkeley and my MBA students who you actually came and did a guest lecture for just a few days ago, which they loved. They were relating to you. Right. And yet being in a place like that, a mainstream, solid, established, recognized university from where most people go down very well-trekked paths of investment banking and consulting and entrepreneurship and beyond, you have gone down a very unique path. What triggered that transition from being in that kind of like a mainstream environment to becoming this very unique version of who you are? To be honest, more than anything else, it was necessity, right? What What is that quote about necessity? It was like uh, necessity breeds innovation or something like that. So, you know, I don't exactly have the most impressive job history. My resume looks more like a rap sheet. You know, I was either fired from every job I had or left before I was going to be fired. And, you know, part of that was because I had I made poor choices in terms of the roles that I chose, because I think that there's this sort of temptation to choose something that looks good on paper, both, you know, in terms of your resume and in terms of your salary. And often that ends up leading to a great deal of dissatisfaction for so many people because they don't actually consider match quality 
uh, you know, which is something David Epstein writes about in his book Range. And for, for so many of us, we're making decisions about our entire lives when we've only lived a fraction of them. So I think it would be hard for me to say, okay, like, you know, follow my path, do it. In fact, I would never recommend anybody follows in my path. I think it would be the height of stupidity to do that because, you know, if you tell somebody, oh, go get fired from every job you've had, move back to your parents when you're 30, live with them until you're 38, and then you'll become a best-selling author, get a book deal and start a successful podcast. That's just stupid advice. Like that is, you know, again, context matters here a lot. So there are two things. One is, is the job history. The other is timing. Timing, you know, played a huge role in this. So I was the both, you know, the beneficiary and also the victim of graduating into two recessions. So I graduated at Berkeley December 2000. It was a horrible time to get out of school and start a career. And then I graduated from Pepperdine in April 2009, which was an even worse time to try to start a career. You couldn't plan timing this bad intentionally. But the thing that graduating in 2009 gave me was this opportunity to be at the forefront of what was going to happen on the internet. And the summer prior, I had two job offers. One was to go work at Yahoo and the other one was to work at Intuit as their social media intern. And I could kind of see, and neither of those were jobs that I wanted. When people would ask me what I wanted to do when I graduated from business school, I would tell them, I know one thing, as long as it has nothing to do with the internet, that's what I will do. But apparently fate and the universe have a sense of humor. So I got this job. Yeah, I wasn't very good at it. But the thing is, it gave me the opportunity to be part of a trend or, or to basically be at the forefront of something that was going to actually make a big difference in our lives. And what's funny is I started a blog while I was there and people who have read that blog, they've landed full-time jobs at Intuit and I never got a full-time job at Intuit. So basically provided a, a reference. But my boss told me at the time, at the end of the summer, that they weren't going to make an offering. He said, I know that you're disappointed, but trust me, we're actually doing you a favor. We'd be doing you a disservice if we hired you. So I think the, the one thing to think about is really, how do you actually find match quality? And I think that really what it comes down to is looking at what you find engaging. Uh, so Tina Silig at Stanford actually says that passion follows engagement. And the problem is that we tend to put the cart before the horse when it comes to passion, because we have this like vague idea that we're passionate about something. So we go and pursue in a career in it. And then we think, oh, well, you know, I'm just bad at this, or I'm not good at this, or that, you know, you're not passionate about it. So I'll give you an example. I had a professor who uh, in an entrepreneurship class told me that I was an incredible salesperson because I was really good at presentations, um, pretty much better than anybody in my class. Now, the problem with that was I took that advice so literally that I went and spent 10 years working in sales, you know, doing jobs I hated. Turns out I am good at presentations. That's why I get, you know, paid to do keynote speeches, but that's the part that I'm good at. And it's really hard to do well at something you could care less about. You know, I, to me, every job I had was just a paycheck. Like I wouldn't have cared. And I still wouldn't care if any of those companies went out of business. I'd feel bad for the people who work there, but, and that's, that's a big problem is you don't feel any sense of purpose or any sense of contribution. So I, I think there are so many factors that go into what make a career fulfilling, but I was truth be told, I didn't choose this path. I was forced to go down this path because all the other options were no longer on the table. I didn't have the grades to be a banker or a consultant. I didn't go to a top 10 business school and I graduated into multiple recessions. And then layer on top of that, a resume that looks like a rap sheet. I was definitely not going to get anywhere going down the traditional path. Yeah. There's something really powerful you said to build on this in, in my class around uh, the doors in front of us 
the ones that close and the ones that may be undiscovered. Can you share that? Of course. So the idea behind that was that you don't want to let the options in front of you blind you to the possibilities that surround you. And the thing is that for the most part, all of us are blind to the possibilities that surround us because what do we do in life? People put options in front of us. You basically are in high school and then your parents come to you with a list of colleges where you can apply. So you now have a set of options in front of you. You narrow down those options. Then you go to college and you meet a counselor or somebody who basically gives you more options that are put in front of you, which are your classes and the majors. And then those majors become narrower and narrower. And you basically what happens is the options become even more limiting because like these are the majors that lead to these paths. And I remember thinking when I first got to Berkeley, I was like, this is supposed to be the ultimate expression of, of you know liberalism and creativity, but the place is actually a breeding ground for conformity as most Ivy League and, and you, know, you know prestigious schools are because you go there thinking, I'm going to have this really original, innovative experience. And then you find out that every single person that is in your class is a future banker, lawyer, doctor, engineer. And you're like, wait a minute, we've limited our careers to four paths. I remember my dad asking one of my uncles about his son saying, so what, and he was in high school asking, what does he want to study? Does he want to study computers, be a lawyer, be an engineer, be a doctor? I was like, you've limited this kid's option to four choices before he's even lived, you know, a quarter of his life. And my uncle said, the only thing he cares about now is girls. I'm like, great. That's all he should care about. He's a teenager, you know? And so I think that that's the thing. Like we make these choices in our lives. Like we're picking items off of a fast food menu. So even the process of applying for a job is very similar. What do you do? You go to a job board like a LinkedIn or if you're a student at a, a top school, you go to your re recruitment center. And so basically what happens is people have put so many options in front of you that you don't recognize any of the other possibilities that surround you. Now, the thing is, like I said, for me, all those doors shut. So it was easy. You know, I had no choice but to start looking for them. Yeah. So maybe there's something really powerful there for any or all of us to learn, which is when you do have doors shut on you, Maybe because of the state of the economy, maybe because of something you were really keen to pursue, but somehow it didn't fructify for you. Maybe that's just life and nature inviting you to look in the right direction, the direction that will make you uniquely who you are. And you call that unmistakable. So talk to us a little bit about this theme of unmistakability. Well, I think it probably helps to give you some context of how we arrived at this idea. So this is something that I, I see a lot of people struggle with when they're trying to build brands or trying to come up with a mission or a message. They go through all these exercises and they read all these books and they get frustrated that, oh, I don't have a tagline. I don't have you know this or that. And what I realized was that a lot of this tends to get revealed through the work that you do. Um, so by the time we came up with the idea for Unmistakable, I'd already been working on this for three or four years. So we started out, as, a, as I mentioned, as a podcast for bloggers called Blogcast FM. You know, and I was interviewing bloggers about how they grew their blogs. And eventually it kind of got uninteresting. But one of my friends actually said that, you know, there two, two, two female podcast guests told me things that really stayed with me. One was uh, Justine Musk, who happens to be Elon Musk's ex-wife. And she she said that if you have a bold and compelling point of view, it's going to piss people off. And, and that is so true. And then, you know, my friend Tara McMullen, she said, there's great creative potential in the things that make you angry. And I just started to notice a pattern that I couldn't help but criticize where what I kept seeing, particularly with bloggers and online marketers, is they would sign up for some course, they would follow the advice of the person who created the course, the letter, and then they would wonder why they weren't getting the same results. And it was so obvious to me that it's like, wait a minute, you're the blatantly obvious variable that is going to throw off any formula for success for that. And any prescriptive advice by nature is flawed because of the fact that once you put in the variable of the person following that advice, 
it falls apart because again, context matters. You know, it, it's like every single person here, as you mentioned, could go and do LeBron James's training routine every single day. They could follow his diet and none of them, including me, are going to make it to the NBA. No offense to those of you in the chat, unless any of you are amazing basketball players, forgive me. But th that's the thing. Like we don't think in terms of context, we ignore probability. And so I just kept seeing this pattern. And there's a, a great sketch from the, the Daily Show where Dimitri Martin is goes in to see this woman to, to do a story on life coaching. And so he goes in and he talks to a life coach and then he talks to one of her clients. And at the end of it, he asks her, have you seen a difference in your life since going to a life coach? And she says, yeah, I'm now a life coach. And to me, that was basically a, a mainstream media example of a trend that I kept seeing. And I thought, this is insane. People are robbing themselves and the world of the very thing that makes them stand out because they're trying so damn hard to fit in. And so I think for me, it was always when I looked at what other people did, it was always, okay, how do I do something different? Or how do I do the opposite? Uh, and so truth be told, and then finally, my friend Mars Dorian was the one who was able to really put it into words. I always joke that I should have given him my book advance, which I will never do. But so Mars Dorian has this really unique style where anytime you see his work roll through your newsfeed, or even if it, whether it was me or another client, you could take one look at it and you could say, okay, I know who did that Mars because it was that unique. And he said, I wanted to create things that were so unique that I never had to put my name on them that would be immediately recognized. And the reality is there's no competition for that. You know, so when I when we need something done by him, we literally can't find anybody else to do what he does because it's so hard to replicate the way he thinks and, you know, the way he creates what he does. And, and to me, that was inspiring. And so eventually that became the the idea of unmistakable really truly came from him it was more hey how do you create something so distinctive that it's immediately recognized as your work and that just was so inspiring to me to the point where we built our brand around that message and you know you've seen my content like if you know our content rolls through your facebook newsfeed everybody knows it's like oh the people who did that are the unmistakable creative team. Um, and that's what we wanted, a very distinctive signature. And I thought that that was the way that other people should do their work too. I mean, nowadays, you know, this is something I wish I had managed to put in the book, but I didn't think of it until years after I wrote the book, which is what happens to people because you start to rethink your ideas and you might even disagree with some of what you wrote when you go back and read it. But I said, standing out in the world today is not even a matter of, of success. It's a matter of survival. If you don't stand out, you're not going to just linger in obscurity. You're eventually going to become obsolete. Thank you. There's something incredibly powerful in what you're saying. And I just want to kind of like distill that, put that back into our collective consciousness and then allow my audience and you to react to it. So you have said that, look, think about it. Most of us in a pursuit of great achievement and success tend to get very quickly slotted into a few very countable paths in terms of the kinds of roles and professions and majors that we have to pursue. And yet there could be a world of other opportunities that lie way beyond. And in your case, you discovered that by having certain doors shut on you. And then you've said that when you actually started to walk in those different directions, one thing you uncovered is how, um, how people are not taking advantage of the fact that there is some very distinctive signature that each of them brings. And maybe that is their life's greatest and most heroic opportunity and inspiration, which is what is your unique signature? Discover it and then forge a path to expressing it in a way that, yeah, allows you to meet your material needs and, uh, you know, and, and, and get to a meaningful place. Uh, but by being the distinctive thing that is you. 
Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's funny, as you said, discover and express, I was thinking, I was like, okay, I, I have a tendency to want to make up mental models. So I'm like, okay, what could I create from that? Like, I was like, I got, you know, an acronym now forming in my head. I was like, discover, express what comes next in this process. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's true. Like, you know, first is this process of discovery and then comes this process of expression. And, you know, from expression, you basically build from there and you can't always predict what's going to happen. Now, let me sort of caveat all of this with, with something. And it takes us back to context. I think that one of the things that I think people have done wrong, particularly in the world that I have been in, is that we have almost this sense of superiority, like there's a sort of sense of superiority to people who don't have these unique paths or lifestyle design or whatever. And that's nonsense. You know, for some people, the paths they've chosen are perfectly acceptable. I think that we have put so much emphasis on extraordinary achievement that we have planted seeds of dissatisfaction in people's lives where there were none before. And so, you know, I say like, who's to say that having a nine to five job living in the Midwest and raising a family isn't a perfectly good life. There's we, we need to acknowledge that as well without sort of creating the sense of superiority of, hey, I do this unique and original thing. So everybody should because it's not realistic for everybody. For somebody who has had a very difficult life, they have to, to make ends meet. And so this is something that I think I've become hyper aware of is that so much of, of what I talk about, what I like encourage and even create is ultimately catered for people who come from privileged backgrounds. You know, and as, as much as I hate to say that, it's true. We can't ignore that. It's kind of funny. I saw somebody uh, here from Chandigarh where I happened to, to go there in 2019. And, you know, I had this guy who drove me around because uh, if you've ever driven to the mountains in India, it's a nightmare. It's like like the same drive that takes two hours in Los Angeles takes 13 because the roads are so bad. Uh, and I remember, you know, having multiple conversations with this guy and, you know, we were asking him, you know, so what is this life like? And I can't help but think, I was like, this guy makes this trek up from Chandigarh to Manali like three times a week, 13 hours on treacherous mountain roads. And I thought to myself, like, that's a hard life. That's a guy who doesn't have upward mobility. And I think from him, like I saw, there's a real difference between imagined obstacles and real ones. And, and the truth is that it made me also hyper aware of what privileged circumstances that I was coming from. Like this is a guy who drove us around and he wouldn't even eat at the restaurants we did. Like he would ask us, hey, can you guys decide what you want to eat for dinner? Because I can't afford to eat where you guys are at and I need to go to a restaurant that's going to close. So you you see moments like that and you kind of realize that, okay, wait a minute, you know, we can talk a lot about purpose and passion and and it's easy to forget that these are things that only people of privilege can really worry about. Yeah. Let me kind of explore this question with you a little bit further. So there is each of us and there are the conditions in which we have been thrust. And then there's this stirring within. How do you sort of envision the fit aspect of it between what we are hungering or drawn to or inspired by from within versus what humanity at that point in its history and in the local conditions that we are thrust maybe yeah. needing from us. So the way that I, I would break this down, I actually ended up writing uh, a piece uh, on Medium titled Why Outliers Are uh, Bad Role Models for Most of Us, because you, by definition, they're anomalies, right? You know, you can't use Bill Gates as a role model because how many of us were born to a relatively wealthy family that happened to be going to a private school that gives us access to a computer center and be born at a time before this computer revolution began. So my old mentor, Greg, used to say that we tend to focus focus on possibility of accomplishing things, but we ignore probability. So the example he gave is that we could all go to 
you know, we're talking about making the Olympics. Uh, you know, he said, you know, if you and I were training for the Olympics and yeah, we made it, that would be amazing. And he said, you know, I was like, it was like, what could we do in the Olympics? And our joke was curling because that just looked like the most ridiculous thing. And I'm guessing people who are Olympic curlers would probably balk at that because I'm get, it's probably much harder than it looks. But the thing is, the probability of, you know, back to the LeBron James example, the probability that, you know, I will make it to the Olympics, my old mentor would make it to the Olympics is virtually zero. And yet, People often choose to go and pursue goals where they have no inherent advantages, where they have no skills. And it takes us back to that whole sort of delusion that, oh, I'm passionate about this thing, so I'll probably get good at it. Whereas I think that if you get good at something first, then you actually have you know more of a likelihood of discovering an opportunity to express it in a way that you know allows you to get paid. So as I told you, I don't listen to podcasts. You know, people would ask me if I was passionate about podcasting. I'm no, I mean, I got interested in it because I did it. I found it engaging. I enjoyed it. And as a result, the more I did it, the better I got. But I think that that's, you know, really something you have to think about when it comes to this. You've got this sort of stirring within and also the world out at, at large and, and you can't ignore reality. And I think that this is, is one of the big problems in you know the space that I'm in. You know, I'm writing a new book right now called Not Another Damn Self-Help Book because I am questioning a lot of what I've learned, even from my own podcast guests, where I think that if you take this advice at face value, it's really dangerous. But I think that the four things I said I've, I've learned from my guests are one, to never treat their advice as gospel only guidance, to question what they tell me in the context of my own life. And then, you know, two others, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But I think that it's it's really important that we look at you know, any advice you get, prescriptive advice from self-help books, advice from parents, and you consider that advice in the context of your life. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself making bad decisions that sound good. And there's so much bad advice. I, there's another piece I published on Medium, which is an excerpt for new book called Bad Advice That Sounds Good in Self-Help Books, TED Talks, and you know, Podcasts. And Follow Your Passion, to me, is at the top of that list. You know, and I think that anytime anybody says everybody should do something, you should assume that person is full of shit because there's nothing everybody should do. Uh, and online marketers are notorious for saying things like this. Yeah. One of the things I relate this back to is um, how you were telling my students something about how it's really important to um, think about the things that you leave out from your resume rather yeah. than to describe and see yourself in terms of your professional pursuits, et cetera, just by the kinds of things that most people habitually put on their resume. I look at, for example, just my wife and how much uh, heart and soul she's put into, um, yeah, just kind of ra raising my daughter. And, and I just see that as like one of her most creative acts. There is so much more to her creativity and it uh, you know, has benefited me and my daughter so much as a family and um, even Mentora, the institute that I run, where she is a marvelous contributor as well. But just seeing my daughter as really, in a sense, the, um, you know, the blank canvas that we were given to produce some life and how it has been so beautifully painted, in a sense, by my wife in the manner in which uh, she has uh, initially, of course, just you know, born this child and over time caregiven and guided her. So, uh, and that's not something that typically people put on their LinkedIn resume. So, um, yeah, what are some other things that you've seen? People from like this audience, you know, that you speak with who have been able to kind of like go way off the beaten path and generate some incredible breakthroughs in terms of the level of fulfillment and attunement yeah. to their authentic core. Well, let me start by using what you said about your wife as, as a jump off point. And for some reason, this seems to be coming up in my conversations a lot lately is people tend to underestimate the value of what they already know and overestimate the value 
value of what they don't know. And, and I think that a mother is such a great example. And I was watching this TV show, Brothers and Sisters, which I, yeah, I tend to watch TV shows. Even if I've seen every season, I'll watch the same show multiple times years later. And there was this brilliant moment in that show where she's trying to raise money for a charity and she's basically been a stay at home mother her entire life. And so, you know, the investor basically says, look, you know, you're, and the only reason he agrees to go and meet her for dinner is because he was friends with her husband who had been a successful entrepreneur. But when he says that I'm concerned about your lack of experience, this was her response, which was so brilliant. She said, you know, I organized the schedules of five extremely well-rounded children. I ran carpools, bake sales, and bluebird groups. I negotiated, coddled, and mandated all at the same time, not to mention what I had to do for my husband to keep him happy and productive. And I did all of this without taking a sick day. The problem is no one values the experience of a stay-at-home parent, which is truly a shame because running this big enterprise, as you put it, would be a day at the beach for me. When I read that, like I, I purposely wrote that down because it struck me so much that you know we tend to undervalue so much of, of what we already bring to the table. So that's a, that's a really a, I think an important starting point of of saying okay, like what what do I have here that is actually worth bringing here? Because we don't we tend to underestimate you know what we're capable of and we underestimate what we already know. Look, I I think that Sally Fields quote of, is really indicative of the fact that your wife could probably run my company better than I ever could because I think raising a child is far more complex than building a company. I think that 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 to me is one thing. So as far as the resume goes, you know, part of the reason I started to look at a resume very differently was because my resume was useless, was not going to open doors. And we were in a really tough time in 2009 where, you know, the average recruiter was getting a thousand resumes for a position from people who were incredibly overqualified. And so the thing that happened was we just kind of said, okay, you have to stand out in some way. And I, I knew that the problem with the resume in my mind was that a resume is things you say you know how to do, but it's not tangible evidence. And I am the master of spinning bullet points into bullshit because when you get fired from as many jobs as I have, you learn how to be really good at interviewing for jobs and basically spinning it all so you can get the next one. You know, like I said, I was good at getting jobs. I was terrible at keeping them. And so that's the thing. I, I knew how to work that system, but it, ultimately it didn't work. So as far as, as looking at a resume, part of the reason I think that a resume is so limiting is because there's so much more to every single person, as I said to you, New Year MBA students, than you could possibly express through bullet points on a resume. If you're this dynamic, creative, innovative individual, there's so many better ways to showcase that than a list of things you say you knew how to do or a list of things you've done in your past. And the thing is, in my mind, that's almost like resting on your laurels. So the other thing is, you know, when you have a body of work, it's tangible evidence of the things you say you know how to do. And not only that, if you get fired or let go from your job, you can take that body of work with you anywhere. So I, I think the thing that makes a, a body of work different than a resume is that it increases in value over time. The value, the more you add to it, the more it compounds, whereas a resume is stagnant. It's it's a static document, whereas a body of work is dynamic. It changes and evolves. And, uh, you know, again, you do like most people know me for my podcast, but, you know, I've done all sorts of other things unrelated, as you mentioned, you know, keynote speaking, writing books, you know, I, I've also worked, you started working on animation. I actually didn't get into this because I wanted to start podcasts. I wanted to make movies. I wanted to be in, in entertainment and make films and, you know, in some sort of roundabout way, I'm getting to kind of do what I wanted to, but in a very different form. I love this idea about creating your own body of work. And especially in a time like this, when we are all so empowered by the access to new media and vehicles through which to create those expressions. Yeah, I just think that that's a clarion call, you know, for any or all of us to take. And so I'm, I'm thinking here that if I had to kind of like unpack that, what that might look like and, you know, tell me if this makes sense uh, to you, Srini, I'm kind of like thinking on my feet here, but it's something about like 
figure out what your message is, figure out what your medium is in terms of the language of expression, which could be different yeah. for different people. Uh, for you, it has turned into a new media, a podcasting, and a book writing in a kind of form, right? And then, and then of course, figure out what your audience is and, and, yeah. and how you're seeking to then serve that audience through that message in that medium. Yeah, is that, is well, that- I, yeah, no, I'm glad you, yeah, great. Now I have something to write about this morning. You articulated something that I, huh. that, no, I mean, I, I, you know, we, we had a course on how to build an audience and I talked specifically about choosing your medium of expression, but I love, I love the idea of thinking in terms of those three areas, you know, what's your message? What's the medium in which it's best expressed and, and who's the audience that it serves? Like those are three very important questions because certain people are really good on video. I'm not. My videos are full of F-bombs and outtakes and it just gets frustrating. Fortunately, video editing is getting easier now. But, you know, that's why I like podcasts because it's easy to edit. It's quick to create. Writing is kind of the same. It's just, again, certain people, like I, I will tell you, I am a far better interviewer than I am a writer. And anybody, I mean, that's what actually prompted starting the podcast. Uh, one of my thir- my 13th guest, I had emailed him about starting some sort of multi-author blog and he replied back saying, I sent this lengthy email, so soapbox basically, you're an average writer, but you're a great interviewer. So I think that you know this multi-author blog is a stupid idea. I think you should do the podcast or these interviews, spin it out into a separate site. And an hour later, I mocked up a WordPress website, sent it back to him and said, is this what you had in mind? When do you want to start? Yeah, amazing. I want to challenge that, by the way, folks, uh, in terms of Shini's claim that he's a better this than he's a writer, because uh, here it is. I'm just going to read uh, a quote from you, Shrini. I think it's really powerful. Creation is its own reward. Unmistakable work is what the world deserves. So charge each wave with everything you've got. Go make something unmistakable. Paddle back out to the lineup. Take a deep breath and do it again. You were born to be unmistakable. I find that very inspiring. Well, I, I had an amazing editor and writing coach. <laughs> Let me just say that. Yeah, like it, it helps. I mean, th- that's the other thing, right? Is that I, I really early on, I started to figure out that I could compensate for my weaknesses by working with other people. Um, that's really, really big in all of this because nobody accomplishes anything of significance without the help of other people. It's just they don't look around, whether you're a parent, whether you're a kid, like think about where you are in your life and ask yourself if any of what you have done would have been possible without somebody's help, you know, whether it's your parents, whether it's a friend. I saw this particularly because I, you know, I didn't have necessarily any artistic skill, but I realized that I, if I had a vision for something, other people could execute that vision. And so that's kind of what ended up, you know, happening with the creative brand. Like I can't draw any of this stuff. Somebody else does it. I know what I want it to look like. So now I'm seeing the building blocks being about the message, the medium, the audience, but also a team. So I would say if we were to, to break this down, say message, medium, let, let's go, you know, I wouldn't even think of it as an audience as much as I would a community, right? So, you know, if you think about it as an audience, you kind of start to see eyeballs instead of hearts. And I can't take credit for that. Austin Cleon talks about this, that he says he, he basically makes this distinction. And so if you think about sort of typical media creation, you know, there's this idea of reach and eyeballs and, and metrics. And let me just, you know, give you an example example that I tend to, to uh, recite frequently to my, the people in my community. So you know, Seth Godin has probably one of the most popular blogs, if not the most popular blog on the internet. Millions of people read it every day. Now, BuzzFeed is a wildly popular website. If BuzzFeed went out of business tomorrow, I don't think that many people would give too much of a shit. If Seth Godin didn't publish a blog post tomorrow, 
there would be one reason. It's because he's dead. And there would be tributes all over the blogosphere to Seth Godin because he didn't focus on eyeballs. He focused on hearts and he has this relationship with his audience. And that's what he's always been focused on. And so I think that, you know, thinking of the audience as a community or a tribe is a much better way to view it because then you see them as people, not numbers. And, and that's, that's really key is, you know, knowing who these people are is really important. Uh, so I would say message, medium, team, community. Yeah, that's beautiful. When you get to have to build that team, how do you make those hard calls about how much you can let go, you know, of, yeah. of, of the control over what you think is the authentic expression of what you're trying to kind of like do? Okay, so this is, this is a great question. And it's something that you, when you, you know, you make the transition from founder to CEO, especially when you have an investor, a lot of things start to change and you have to learn how to delegate in a way that you're not micromanaging and also not compromising the quality of your work. And you're going to make mistakes along the way. You're going to have bad hires, but there are a couple, and again, I, this is all stuff I've stole from other people. So I can't take credit where, you know, you like for any of this, but I think cardinal rule number one is to hire slow fire fast. I think that there's always this temptation to say, okay, let's get somebody on board as quickly as possible because we need to fill this role. But that usually is always a recipe for disaster. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in my own business where we bring on somebody thinking that they're perfect. And sometimes they start out strong and then we realize that, you know, they're just not capable of what we want them to do. And when you're on a lean team, that's as small as ours, we need people who can navigate ambiguity, do as much work as they can with very little direction. So I was looking for a community manager when we raised our round of funding. And I, you know, I looked around on LinkedIn, all these people like social media backgrounds, emailed me and contacted me and none of, and I, I used the you know job description my investors helped me wrote and I was like these people are all completely unqualified to do this job and they're going to come in with their own ideas of what they want this to be I was like we need somebody from within our community and so I contacted a friend who I'd seen you know she would write these summaries of our podcasts and they were better than any summary that I've, I'd ever written and I'm the host of the show and so I contacted her and I said hey I'm looking for a community manager and she said Trini I, I don't need a job to, and two I'm a civil engineer without a PhD with a PhD and I told her I was like if you can build a bridge, you can build a community. All that tells me is you're smart and you know how to solve problems. And I was like, I'm not asking you if you need a job. I'm begging you to join our team. I gave her incredibly vague direction and she basically hit the ground running. I mean, she's my joke is that when it comes to running our community, I report to her, not the other way around. I literally just have a meeting with her. She tells me what to do, you know, and, and that's it. And so I think bit by bit, you, you learn to let go. The other part of this is, is having systems that then this is really a big one right? Because a business like any area of life is an interdependent system with inputs and outputs and, you know, bottlenecks and all this other stuff. So you really have to think about it like you're building a factory and, and really creating an assembly line where the only part of it that is creative is the part that you do. Like I'm the most useless employee at my company because I don't do anything other than interview people and write you know, at this point. And, you know, that was prior to like speaking before COVID speaking, but I do three things of value for my company. But the thing is that so um, Seth Godin wrote this book called Lynchpin, and he had a really great quote. He said, any one of you could do Richard Branson's job, except for about five minutes a day, because it's in those five minutes that he creates billions of dollars in value. So the value I create happens in about an hour a day. Anybody else could do the rest of this job because all it is is basically crossing uh, T's and dotting I's. And you know, it's, it's not as complex. But the thing is, there are all these other dynamics. So this is why I joke that business school doesn't teach you a damn thing about running a business. No offense, Heather. <laughs> like, yeah. But you know, you, the thing is, you get out of business school and you start a business and you suddenly start to see that, oh, wait a minute, unlike the case study that we did in my class, 
this is actually dynamic. The variables are constantly changing. I have to deal with idiots who are unmotivated. You know, I have to deal with people who have big egos. Like you can't account for any of those variables in a case study. You can only kind of assume those things. So you have all these variables that get basically throw the whole thing out of whack. And so people come out of business school, they start businesses and they, they start to take like, you know, these business school concepts and try to apply them to their business. And suddenly they don't, they find that they don't work. And it's like, yeah, of course they don't work because you're now dealing with reality, not static pieces of paper or things that you've learned in books. You're, you're, you're basing strategy on something that worked for like some Fortune 500 company and you're a startup of one person. Everything you're saying makes me visualize you as this uh, creative, unmistakable production machine, just putting out just a disciplined you know, volume of content over time, engaging, yeah. connecting, appealing to the hearts of your, uh, of your tribe. What do you do to stay connected with your soul? What, what, what practice have you found most important and valuable for you to make yeah. sure you're taking those inner dives, right? On a regular basis. Yeah, so that, that's really important. You know, pre-COVID, it was a lot of snowboarding, although I'm finally getting back up on the mountain now. Like I bought a, a midweek season. So I usually have a snowboarding season pass every year. Um, surfing, you know, you mentioned the unmistakable book. Surfing has been a huge part of this entire journey. I think partially because it was where I got a lot of my best ideas, but I think, you know, it was this parallel. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that both my surfing and creative journey started almost uh, at the same time because one feels the other. And the thing is, as a surfer, you like you suddenly change a lot of things about yourself. You know, you have a reason to get up in the morning. Surfers get up super early. And so if you want to be up at six in the morning to go get good waves, that means no more staying out till two in the morning, getting drunk and that kind of stuff. So your habits start to change. I mean, bit by bit, I think that what happens is that when you find something like that, that grounds you, it creates a ripple effect into every other area of your life. And so I just became a healthier person. You know, I mean, like when I I was surfing regularly. I was at my most ideal. Like I'd been, I was in better shape than I ever was in college. You know, somebody mentioned Indian matchmaking here. I had friends who contacted me from college saying, dude, what the hell? How have you not aged? You look exactly the same. And I was like, surfing. It's a fountain of youth. That's the thing about water sports. Like, so I think that whatever it is, you need some sort of practice that, that grounds you. And for me, that was always surfing with, with COVID and all that meditation. The other thing is I think you need, you know, leisure things like this is one thing I've realized just over the last couple of days, when we think about sort of productivity, creativity, it's almost like we approach this from a place of guilt and, you know, think, oh, I'm not productive. But the whole point of being productive is not to get things done. It's to enjoy the rest of your life so you can binge, you know, bling empire on Netflix guilt free. You know, so for me, it's, you know, video games the evening for three hours a night, play NBA basketball. So yeah, I think that actually this is this is a metaphor that I would I would describe it. And I think I shared this through class. And it was this idea of a portfolio of meaning. Because the thing is, and I, I learned this actually from a guest who had written a book called How to Be Single and Happy. And she said that your person can't be your everything because she's like, that's like bang your happiness on one risky stock. In a, and so, you know, there's a reason investors have diversified portfolios because if one stock tanks, it doesn't tank the entire portfolio. And I think that that's true for life as well. So you never want one thing to be the sole source of your happiness and fulfillment, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's money, whatever it is, it needs to actually be a combination of things. And, and the thing is that those things are never going to be completely in balance. Like think about somebody who has kids for the first time. Like they think that, oh, I'm going to have all this joy to my life. Like it's going to be amazing. This is what I want more than anything in the world. And then reality sets in and first a year, this kid doesn't let you sleep. So you're sleep deprived. By the time they become a teenager, you're dealing with an angst ridden asshole. Like most of us were to our parents. And you're like, oh, this is not the just bastion of joy that I thought it would be. Parts of this suck. 
you know, and that's, you know, one thing that one of my mentors told me, he said, no matter what you get in life that you want, something about it will suck. So he said, you know, let's say you want to be famous, right? You have, or you want your own TV show. He said, great. You know what sucks about that? Now you can't go out to a restaurant without people bothering. And, and we don't think about the downsides to any of the things that we want, but there are downsides to everything. There are trade-offs and opportunity to cost to every single choice that you make. You know, you talk about the celebrity, um, you know, experience and the downside to that. And uh, you mentioned how, you know, Kirti has found uh, one of those, uh, you know, kind of chapters in her own life. Uh, yeah. Indian Matchmaker was, for those of us who are not aware, was, um, it's been a show on Netflix and, um, um, yeah, our own good man, Srini, was featured in it. <laughs> I remember the first time my wife heard that um, I was going to be on your show and then she saw your picture and I was like, I recognize him. <laughs> so how is that? How is that experience for you in, in the spotlight? Well, so there are numerous things and I've written about this. I, I actually wrote an article right after the show came out titled the South Asian arms race for impressive cultural biodata. Like I went into this whole thing with zero expectations because um, I knew right from the start that if I get, go into this with expectations, it's going to be a recipe for disappointment. The other thing that I think that I brought to it was the fact that I knew how media worked. I understood how media can shape public perception. I was hyper aware that and I was just writing about this this morning I said you have to realize that you know they say anything can you say can and will be used against you in a court of law and the same is true on a reality TV show so anytime I have to sign a contract that has something to do with media I have a cousin who's a media attorney look at it and he gave me some priceless advice he said it doesn't matter what this media really says he said anybody can make you look like an asshole in the editing he said your job is to make sure they have zero ammo to do that and that was priceless the other was from my cousin because I found out that I was going to have to sit in the car with a matchmaker for an hour. And she said, dude, do what you do best, interview her. And so if, for those of you who saw the show, you'll notice she got zero questions in on me. And that was entirely by design. Because I knew that if, if she cornered me, I would get chatty. And you know, Robert Greene and the 48 Laws of Power says, the more you say, the more likely you are to say something stupid or something you'll regret. And I knew that going in. And I think a lot of people didn't think about the fact that, by the way, the things I'm saying are going to shape the perception of me as a public figure once this is done. And so I, I think that that was important. And people are like, oh, Srini took the high road. It's like, no, I just knew how to manipulate public perception because I understand power dynamics. I didn't say a damn thing when I was called a loser because I knew that if I said nothing, the person saying all these horrible things about me would just dig themselves into a deeper hole. It's literally just was writing about this morning. I said, you know, when you're tempted to retaliate, show restraint and you'll be the one that actually stays in power. So I overall, so here's what I think is important. All that aside, like those are the dynamics of media. I think this started a conversation that people who grew up here, Indians in particular, should have started 20 years ago. We're having a conversation that we know and people will talk about how many cringeworthy moments there are in the show. And the reason they're cringeworthy is that we have all of us were Indian experienced one of those moments. It's like, oh, you're too dark. It's like, yeah, go to hell. Like literally the summer I started surfing, my parents, friends, seamen's like, oh my God, you've gotten so dark. And I told my mom, I was like, you know, next time I see one of them, I'm gonna be like, oh my God, you've gained a lot of weight since I last saw you. Would that be okay? She's like, no. I'm like, Exactly. I was like, there's no etiquette here. But I think what we did was we called out a lot of issues. I think we brought to we, we started a conversation that we should have started a long time ago. Right. That's the, the biggest thing that came out of it. Now, matchmaker aside, like I personally did at this point, I've joked that hiring Seema to be my matchmaker would be like hiring Hannibal Lecter to operate on a family member because I literally told her that I was a surfer and she matched me with a girl who said she hates the beach. I was like, 
clearly you don't have you're not good at this job so yeah yeah so thank you thank you that was a colorful chapter and uh yeah. my family i i'm not much of a tv watcher but they they were watching the show and they they enjoyed that uh connection yeah. with you so uh, we're coming to uh, a point where we have to painfully so start to wrap up and bring this to closure uh in uh, closing then two things one is what's your one big message for for our community here, for our tribe here that uh, they can they can take back and reflect on something that they can take back and perhaps reflect and act on and the second is what's your uh, what's your next big dream in life well okay so let me let me just kind of say, say this I, I think that it goes back to something I said earlier when you listen to advice from anybody myself included professors parents authors of self-help books seminar leaders spiritual teachers you really need to look at that advice in the context of your own life because what's true for me might be nonsense for you you know, and I learned this actually from, you know, a mother who, attend, you know, who was one of my courses and I, like, I give all this productivity advice and one of my mentors called me out and he said, dude, you haven't been in an office for 10 years. And he said, you don't have any kids. And she would show up with an infant in tow. And I realized, I thought, oh, who doesn't have an hour a day? And, and I realized, well, if you're a mother with an infant and a three-year-old, you probably don't have an hour a day. And so I realized that I had to even think about whatever I said to people and specifically tell them. This is literally what I have told people in my courses that, that I'm teaching is to consider the possibility that every single thing I've said is absolute bullshit because it might be for them because of context. So that's the thing that I would say people should take away from this conversation is to listen to anything that I've said and assume that it's necessarily valid. As far as sort of what the next big dream is, we brought up Netflix. I never wanted to, I, like, I don't want to ever be known for being a reality TV personality. I want people to know my, me for what I've done with Unmistakable Creative. But, you know, funny enough, we were talking to Netflix at, at one point through a talent agent at CAA. We, when I saw the David Letterman show on Netflix, I, I couldn't help but think that's what I want to do. I want to do an interview show like that. And I, my, my roommate, who was now my roommate, um, actually said, well, what's to prevent you from doing it? And he said, you have an audience, you have access to interesting people in droves. And so we basically put in like a, just a quick note on the podcast. You saying, hey, is there anybody who could help us make this happen? And the one person who replied was a talent agent at CAA and so who happened to be a listener. And so, you know, we shopped it around. They, you know, they weren't quite uh, into it because they said it, we just weren't big enough. So, I mean, that still is long term. That would be the, the, the ultimate dream would be to basically take this to a bigger media platform like a Netflix and to get to do it. Because the thing that I think TV gives you that audio doesn't is the ability to basically paint a much different picture. Like, I think the thing that I loved most about Letterman was, you know, you look at the interview he did with Malala, like we got to see her actual life. Like we got to see, you know, where she lived. And I'd mentioned this friend, Mars Dorian. So he, he basically grew up right after the, the Berlin Wall fell. And I, like in my mind, I'm thinking if I ever get to do a TV show with him, the episode would start at you know the site of the former Berlin Wall, like because his all his art is such a, a utter disregard for authority. So it, and you can't do stuff like that in audio, it, yeah. And then so I think that that's one thing that I I really it's still a dream of mine is to to basically get to do this in a television platform. That's beautiful. It reminds me of a moment with one of my mentors where he was just guiding me a little bit about how to be patient, but how to still keep keep the effort going in terms of converging to, to the right purpose, to the right direction in life in a very thoughtful and mindful and personally sort of driven way. And he just kind of like made this made this shape like of a triangle, a gradually kind of step-by-step, -step, you know, like convergent kind of path, you know, in life. Not one oh, which right. is like this or not one which is like this, it's open-ended. That's what I see in you, Srini. I see something that started perhaps in your childhood and certainly by the time you were in Berkeley, that initially yeah. certain, certain doors were closed, but certain new directions were opened up and then you discovered all this wealth within. And then gradually it's been given more shape and more definition, more form. 
and yeah. more texture, right? And uh, and now you're getting a little bit closer and closer towards yeah. building like, on that moment. Well, and then, you know, that that's the thing. Like, we're at this point where now everything is about how do you scale? Like, that's the question. Because, like, the hard part is done. We have more content than we, people could consume in a lifetime at this point. And we're continually creating more. And so ideally, like in a dream world, I would love it if somebody like HBO acquired us because that would be, you know, in a lot of ways, fantastic because we could take everything we've done in terms of our content and we'd have a platform to turn it into television because you've heard the sh you know episodes on our show. Many of them could be TV shows and movies on their own. Perfect. So beautiful. Folks, uh, thank you so much for joining us today and this conversation with Srini. We look forward to having you back in a couple of weeks, Srini. This has been uh, highly illuminating and so inspiring to see you live your own truths. All the best, Yushrini, as you keep going down this uh, wonderful and unmistakable path. Uh, thanks so much.